the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome back, Glenn. I uh, hope you had a good Halloween. I had a fantastic Halloween. Thank you very much. I saw some some pictures that, <laughs> that you posted of the of the makeup work there. Did you want to talk a little bit about uh, your new costume uh, realm, the, the new appliances that you're getting into for costumes? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're referring to, right, is I mean, every year I, I, I've always been very interested in Halloween, so I always go a little little crazy and uh, usually do, you know, some big kind of costume or something. But one of the things I'm always known for is that I almost always have a mask covering my face, and my face is almost always covered every Halloween, which, you know, always makes drinking and eating a little difficult. But... <laughs> <laughs> this year, I decided to enter into the realm of prosthetics and latex and foam and uh, learning how to do more professional-like makeup and, you know, prosthetics. So, you know, ridge brows or noses. Uh, in, in this case, this year, I, I did a, uh, a ridge brow with tentacles. So it looked like, um, well, depending on uh, what your background is, it, <laughs> it either could have looked like a Cthulhu creature or it could have looked like uh, Dr. Zoidberg from oh, there you go. Futurama or just maybe the, what was it, Davy Jones, the squid guy from Pirates of the Caribbean 2. There was another one, you know. So it was basically an octopus-faced-looking creature. Totally. No, it looked it looked really cool too. Big fake hands and big robe and everything. Uh, great, uh, great looking costume. Thanks, thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate. it. Did you dress up or go out or anything? Oh no, uh, we did. Um, <laughs> my my youngest did all the dress up for us. The the other people, you know, still living at home. My wife and I and the other kids uh, uh, that aren't off at college. We're just in different rooms throughout the house, and then the youngest, uh, who's eighth grade, came through, you know, trick or treat, uh, and we handed out candy to her. And then uh, she went back up to her room, switched out to a different costume, came back oh. down, trick or treated again, went back upstairs, different costume. Uh, she had set up. Oh, I think she went through nine or ten <laughs> different costumes. Oh, cavalcade of costumes. I love it. Tr- mixing and matching, you know, the, the this wig and then and, and this outfit and then kind of just, you know, swapping out to then be different people. So that was uh that was super fun. We did learn though, we got one of the mul- those multi bags of, of candy and learned that there's no one in the house that likes milk duds. So Oh uh, <laughs> I, I can't say I'm a huge fan of the milk dud myself, man. Well, especially in a bag with Kit Kats and Reese's cups, you know, it's the milk duds were definitely the last to go. And then everyone decided, you know what? Kind of sick of candy and aren't really interested in the milk. And if the only candy we have is milk duds, we don't need to hold on to this candy. Yeah, that's how we know we're spoiled. When we were kids, there was no candy ever going to waste. Uh, you know, I always did try to pawn off on my sisters the Tootsie Rolls. Never been a big Tootsie Roll fan. Uh, Me neither, but I would still eat them when I was a kid because <laughs> if it's it's the only candy you'd get for, you know, another year. Another, what, four weeks until Thanksgiving? You did candy at, at Thanksgiving? Well, you know, I guess homemade's more stuff. Oh, Fudge okay. and cookies and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, well, l- before we get into the main topics, a few other things. Uh, so first is a big shout out. Thank you to a couple new uh, patrons on patreon.com slash double it podcast. And that is to Jessica and Philip. Hopefully I didn't double up and 
say them also last week, but uh, if I did, double thanks to Jessica and Philip. If you're also interested in helping us out with a couple bucks every month, uh, you can go to that website uh, for more information. Yeah, and I thought I would read a couple of emails too. I had a really old one that had just been sitting around. And I, kept, I kept forgetting it, and you know we we haven't been the most consistent with our schedule. So this, <laughs> the past few months, that's correct. Yeah, totally. This was one from well, it was technically in July, but let's say the end of July. I'm going to say August, so it doesn't seem as bad. But that's how many months old it is. And it's, uh, it's an email from Jennifer. Uh, she was saying that she was catching up on some old podcast episodes and yesterday happened to listen to the first activity level episode from Jan- back from January. And not at all related to the topic, but at the beginning of the episode, I guess we were discussing our plans for the year. And I mentioned how much travel and training I had planned in 2020 and how excited I was because I was getting ready to go to England. And apparently I said – 2020 is shaping up to be a pretty great year. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Whoops. The best played the best laid plans, right? Yeah. Uh and I also remember at the beginning of the year it being a a big concern that that every conference would have the would have some sort of like eyesight metaphor yes, right. in their 2020 thing. I I don't think that happened at all. No, it didn't and uh <laughs> I, I think I would have rathered that than where we are. I mean, if, if given the choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if given the choice. I mean, you know, gun to my head. Well, thank you, Glenn. Probably would have chosen the other. We are 100% in agreement there. <laughs> well, anyway, I just want to give a shout out to Jennifer. Thanks for that janky email. That's an inside joke. Oh, boy. All right, and then another email from Robert Ramatowski, and we oh, yeah. mentioned Robert in a couple of episodes back when we were doing our book list, our, our favorite books, the books that we thought everyone should have in their library as a fingerprint expert. And one of the, the, the ones we mentioned was uh, Advances in Fingerprint Techniques, the third edition, which he was the editor on and you know kind of went uncredited for all of his work on that. So he just really wanted to thank us for that shout out and bringing it to light and uh, he's even talking about possibly doing an update uh because you know in in his mind all of those references are outdated already and I wouldn't say they're all outdated but he thinks it could use an update and well, I, I wish him luck with that because it is so much work and uh anyway, he just wanted to like shoot us an email saying thanks uh for the recognition it really is a lot of work that he's put into it and uh and you know pretty great book so uh you know he definitely deserves you know every bit that we said about him yeah he did actually have an honorable mention for us which oh, yeah. actually i had considered but because i referenced his book and we also had uh christoph's book on there I, I thought, well, no need to get into this, but uh, he mentioned it, and I'll bring it up. So I don't know if you're aware, Eric, but every three years, Interpol does a report, and it's like a, what came out in the last three years related at all to fingerprints, although most of it tends to be, of course, related to visualization development of latent prints. But uh, it's it's a and it's done by the University of Lausanne usually you know those guys over there Nicole Egley, uh, Andy Bacu and those guys so it's it's very thorough it's very detailed but it's a really good resource and it's a continuously updated report that comes out every couple of every three years with really good references and he uh, Robert wanted to mention that too since 
his book was published in 2012. In the last eight years, there have been lots more articles. He mentioned going to the 2016 to 2019 Interpol report. And uh, yeah, he's right. It's, it's a great resource. Free online. Fantastic. All right. Well, it's, it, it's added to the list. All right. Uh, any other emails, or we're going to get to? Uh, you ready for the the anagram? Well, one more. Uh, not an okay. email, but a shout out. Wanted to give a shout out to Heidi Eldridge. She oh, yeah. uh, finished her PhD and successfully presented it and and defended it to her committee. I was honored to be on her committee. It's a really cool project. Uh, we'll have to have Heidi come on sometime discuss this research and other research, uh, but in a very quick short. Uh, summary. Uh, her research is really geared towards a, a an expanded model of assessing value during the analysis stage. And instead of having a value, no value, uh, she looked at a much more expanded scale, having different kinds of categories, recognizing different levels of utility and usefulness for latent prints. And then besides just um, you know, she she developed four different scales for assessing what value really meant, looking at overall value usefulness as well as utility for APHIS as well as complexity and difficulty in the latent print. So not just, um, you know, how useful is it, but how complex is it and can it be searched in APHIS systems and, you know, what, what kinds of distortion levels. It, it, it's a really neat and elegant system that she did using different kinds of tools and now uh, she's at a point where how do we implement this kind of expanded value system. It's a great project though and I look forward to more research coming out from this as she publishes these in, in journals and continues to research. Oh, can't wait to read them. So congratulations to Dr. Heidi Eldridge. Absolutely. Big congratulations. All right. Uh, so the uh, the anagram here for uh, today, Glenn, is recapture opossums. So R-E-C-A-P-T-U-R-E and then opossums, O-P-O-S-S-U-M-S. Yikes. Yeah, a little longer one. But everyone kind of work through it, <laughs> depending on how your brain works, Pause the episode sometime before the end where we reveal it or just kind of think through it in, the, in, the, in one half of your head while you listen to it in the other half of your brain. The, the subject for today's show uh, is a, a new paper that's come out here recently. Uh, Glenn, you want to do the introduction of the paper? Sure. So the paper that we are discussing today was published this year, 2020, in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. And the main author is Kelly Carter, so we might refer to as Carter, but I'm sure at some point we'll be mentioning Tom Busey because he was you know, in charge of this. Looks like he, he's, um, it, he's got his students working on this one. So a number of students, uh, Kelly Carter and McGregor Vogelsang, John Vanderkolk, of course, and Tom Busey. So this is the group out of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. So the, the article is titled The Utility of Expanded Conclusion Scales During Latent Print Examinations. And it's a look at, in a structured study, how 27 fingerprint expert participants performed using – both scales, the, we'll call it the three-point current scale, which would be identification, inconclusive, and exclusion, versus 
a five-point OSAC-like scale where you have, in addition to ID, exclusion, and inconclusive, you have two additional categories, support for same source, support for different sources. And so this article explored how these participants performed under 60 trials, 30 under the three-point scale, 30 under the five-point scale, measuring various error rates and uh, and or rates of misleading evidence. So uh, your initial thoughts on, on the paper, Eric. Just overall, what, what was your sense or takeaway from this? Well, okay. So at a, the highest level, I have been and continue to be a big supporter in moving in this direction. Uh, expanding from three to a five-point scale. You know, at the agency I worked at, you know, pushed for that change uh, after uh, Alice White's, at the time Alice Maceo's paper came out explaining how Vegas had moved in that direction in really, I guess, a four-point scale because um, the support for same source being the uh, the kind of breakout there. And then even in classes I teach about exclusion, you know, right. we're starting to work through how do we handle the other half of this, the support for different source part, to really do have a full five-point scale. And I'm overall pleased with the research has moved in this direction of uh, supporting the use uh, of the scale. And, you know, not, I guess, too surprised by some of the conclusions that they found here from the research that Given the opportunity to make that support for same source, you know, as opposed to calling an ID when it's on the border, examiners are jumping in on that opportunity. Yeah, I do have some quibbles with with some of the, the some of the write up here, and uh, have some concerns about the samples that were used, and which we've kind of discussed, you know, offline, separate from the podcast, uh, a couple of times, but you know. So with a few reservations, you know, overall kind of pleased. I, I wish I liked it more, but I'm overall, you know, pleased with kind of the direction. Maybe this is a first step towards, you know, more research in this direction. Hmm, okay. I'm looking forward to discussing what some of those nuances might be. Overall, though, I'm very glad they they did this research. It, it answered some yeah. basic questions that I was looking for, and I believe – that they are actually doing a larger scale version of this. This was their first foray into this, but I'm pretty sure that they have a larger version that they're working on. And I think that larger version might have been NIJ funded. I, I really oh, okay. hope I'm not wrong in this, but uh, please, <laughs> if somebody knows differently, please correct me. But I, I believe that, that that's coming because – I think at some point I talked to Tom and I said, yeah, you know, I participated in the study. He's like, no, you didn't participate in that one. You participated in the new one, the NIJ-funded larger one. So, uh, you know, to your criticisms, there might still be time to, you know, to to bring some of those up and, and maybe have Tom hear what those are. And, and same here. I have a few minor points, but overall, the data are, are actually, to me, very useful if – they are representative of how it would be applied in casework. And I think that's probably where we're going to have the big distinction is how applicable yeah. is this to casework. And, and the authors even allude to a few things. For example, you, you mentioned let's, – let's start with that one. You mentioned the, the samples that they used. Now, they had a fairly large number of latents and knowns that they worked with. And they said that you know they gave a nice random sampling to different participants, and so the participants were able to you know have a nice randomized 
sampling of difficult ones, but they even said that they may have been more difficult than in casework or even in the FBI black box study. They took some of their results and they compared them to black box as well. So do you want to get into a little bit about the, the format? or Yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the, the setup, like what, what the examiners did yeah. um, Great. When, they, when they participated in the study. You know, I, I was uh, you know, one of the, the people here that, that, that participated. Uh, so I would first start off by being presented with a latent print. You do the, the general markup. It's the standard kind of thing that, that's now been you know, pretty standardized in, in many recent, well, re- recent, going back 10 years now of, of uh, latent print um, comparison kind of studies. And then being presented with a, a single known print to compare that to, and then being asked to reach a conclusion, either ID and conclusive or exclusion. So, you know, kind of mixed up of what scale you're using. So you might be at the end be presented with those three possibilities to choose from, or at the end, you may be presented with all five. And um, as you're going through, it's all kind of mixed up. But uh, essentially, you'd be presented at some point with basically the same comparison twice, once with a three-point scale, once with a five-point scale. And then in the research, they would kind of tally it all up and see, okay, how did just being presented with this, with the three or the five, how did that one little difference change the conclusion that you reached? Uh, are you, were you ID when you only had three, but support for same source when you had the full five? Or were you, you know, did you stick with ID the whole time? On the other side, if you were inconclusive, did you bump that up to support for same source um, or, or or stick with inconclusive? Is that is it pretty? Would you agree yeah. that's kind of a good overview of of what the examiners were asked to do? Yeah, I, I, and uh, one other thing is that it was being timed. Uh, you had three minutes to basically complete the trial once you started it. But I didn't ever find that I needed the full three minutes. I don't think I ever came up on it. I don't know about you, but um, I don't even remember the timer, so yeah, I guess right, not. Right. <laughs> and and I think one of the results they reported was that participants used the full three minutes less than 10% of the time. So they didn't really factor that in either. There didn't seem that it factored that much into the, the participants. So one of the my, – my, probably my biggest concern here with just the, the actual samples and then – probably even my biggest concern of the whole study because it really directly affects what results you can pull out of this is that for many of the comparisons, it was pretty quick to just with, to go with inconclusive as my response, not because I was balanced between the data that supported same source and data that supported different sources, but purely because the known was such crap. Yeah, I, I had the exact same finding. And yeah, I, I felt the exact same way that it was a very quick examination because, yes, it's inconclusive. And that would have been an appropriate use of it, except it never allowed me or you to state why I was inconclusive, which is kind of critical to our work. Right. And you know for this kind of study you know what i what i would really kind of expect is that the the inconclusive you kind of take this that out right you take out the inconclusive due to the known right which is i mean that's a really common conclusion to reach inconclusive due to the known print but this study isn't trying to measure that right it's trying to measure 
if you have a three-point scale and you're inconclusive, are you really like leaning one way or the other? And when the known is crap, you're not leaning one way or the other. You're just saying the known is crap. I just kind of stopped because I can't do anything else. Right. And because of that, well, then, you know, what one of their final things was talking about, you know, how it, it was pretty common that examiners that had made an ID when in a three-point scale and then moved down to support for same source when presented with a five-point scale as compared to when they started out inconclusive, bumping that up to support for same source. Again, the problem being that so many of the inconclusives are you know, just going to stay with inconclusive because of the known print. You don't really then have the opportunity to bump those up to support for same source because you don't have, you know, those inconclusives aren't on the edge. They're, they're inconclusive for a different reason. Yeah, no, exactly. I I wish that they either allowed for Alice White's incomplete, you know, if, if this would have been an incomplete, then let's do that. Or like you said, in the selection of the trials, they probably should have varied the amount in the latent print. And let me explain what I meant by that. Is often these trials, the latent was fantastic. You look at the latent go, oh, this yeah. is great. And then you look at yeah. the known and you go, oh, well, the known's okay. But then you realize that there's the area that they would have overlap is not represented. So then you would have to go, well, I need better knowns to actually do this exam. So in what they could have done was to just decrease the size of the latent and use good knowns always and have that represented in there as opposed to creating these scenarios where both are possibly even good or like you said, the known was just horrible and the only overlap area was so minimal that you ultimately really couldn't draw a conclusion other than I just need better knowns and this is an easy, straightforward examination. Right. The, for, for I think really for this this type of research to really truly show how this five point scale is going to work uh, and how examiners react to it, yeah. Uh, then the the research needs to you know, not have situations where all of the samples the known needs to be uh, clear and complete and fully encompassing all of the uh, relevant area that the latent print you know, contains. Or, or or allow them to say incomplete, and then you know that trial basically yeah. doesn't kind of apply there. But I mean, I, I take your point, but at least you can distinguish that trial from other inconclusive, bal- you know, where it's a balanced inconclusive. <laughs> I mean, true, but again, I, I don't know what you would do with that data. It doesn't seem to then relate to the rest of the study. And then I'd be worried about, you know, uh, the the um, participants using their own agency policies and terms, and, mm. which might not include incomplete. And then it just starts to get fuzzier, right? Yeah, you're you know, right. To, yeah. to reduce as much noise as possible and get right to the crux of the matter, it, it seems like it would you would just need very a specific set of of test samples that really cluster around either the two border points in the three conclusion scale or the four border points in a five conclusion scale. And and again, and then see how examiners go from there. Yeah. Now, the one thing I'll point out is that because the trials were pretty much the same and which ones, you know, people got or sort of randomized, then technically – in theory, you should have the same number of – we'll call them incomplete exemplars in the three-point trials versus the five-point trials. So 
they should effectively kind of balance each other out in, in, in some ways. But my suspicion is that the three-point scale is going to actually be a little more sensitive to, to this compared to the five-point scale because there were times that I might have been able to say support for same source if I had three or four or five matching minutia. But on the three-point scale, it, it, it would have just been, oh, it's inconclusive, but I need better knowns. So uh, I, 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 take, I, I go right back to your initial point, which I think is, is great. It confuses our interpretation of what this might actually be like in real casework. Right. That's, that's kind of what I was going for there. Hearing though that uh, it sounds you know like they are moving forward with a larger scale study uh, is encouraging. Like I said, I I, I want more information here, uh, and I'm very hopeful that it supports the direction that I think we should be moving as a whole. So you know, so I view this as very important, and so, you know some of the noise there kind of you know, gets in the way of of you know, having that really strong support uh, to push the entire community. Uh, into a five conclusion scale or towards that, uh, you know, towards considering it and adopting it. And now with, with uh, research supporting that. Yeah. All right. So let's take a look at another point that to draw out from this. And it's interesting because this article was discussed on CLPEX. That's www.clpexclpex.com. And some of the examiners there, one in particular, uh, use this article to kind of show how bad the five point system is, and and you know the, use this as evidence of see this is why if we go in this direction it'll 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 be you know the end of the profession it'll be terrible. And I did not <laughs> looking at the same article and data I did not have that view at, at all. In fact, I actually found a bit of encouragement. But what I th- I thought was interesting the same points that were focused on in that on the thread online were the same points I I thought were interesting. There's a lot of different stuff in the paper, but there's only three things that really stood out to me. And so the first one is well, let's take a look at the false positive error rate. So was there a different false positive error rate under the five point system versus the three point system? And the answer is no. But yes, but not really. In other words, there was one false positive under the five conclusion scale, but the author said, but we expected that there could be one false positive or two in, you know, under either. So it's kind of within the normally expected. If there were, you know, one in the three point and 10 in the five point, that might be a little more concerning, but effectively, it was within the expected number of false positives based on, say, something like the FBI black box study. So, I mean, did you see that as a concern that that was there was one false positive under that under no. the five point? Well, and and I mean, if, if let's first let's for instance assume that the one false positive was in the three conclusion scale. Yeah, I, I wouldn't now be saying, "See, we can't use three-point conclusions anymore." <laughs> like it's totally wrong. Like it, it would it, it's just one, right? It's right. <laughs> that's the kind of the expected level in this kind of research to see it. Yeah. And or if there's, you know, one in each, it, it, really the the difference being just one that's that's just random chance. Yeah, I mean, it's 30 roughly, oh, it's 27, but roughly 30 examiners doing 30 trials under each. So you're talking about 900 trials. Under the three point and nine hundred under the five point, so we expect based on 
you know, FBI, the FBI black box data, you know, approximately one in every 700 trials or so. So that fits within the confidence right. interval from a study like that. So, right, because it's not higher than the expected confidence interval, I don't, I don't see it as concern. So accuracy isn't really an issue. So the second thing pointed out uh, elsewhere as well was one of the things that I gravitated to was, so how does the rate of identification change? And one of the things that is pointed out on CLPEX is, oh, look, you have a lot fewer identifications under the five-point scale. So just to give a statistic here, the under the three-point scale, participants in the study – made identifications around 38% of the time. And under the five-point scale, again, assuming that the image difficulty was approximately the same under both test conditions, it dropped from 38% to 27%. You lost about 11% identifications. And that's when when the, uh, the sample presented was mated. Good point. That's a really good point. Sorry. Um, yeah. Well, there would only be one other trial, right? A False, right, positive, exactly. false positive. So yeah, so it had an eleven percent drop when you went to the five point scale. And again, this was viewed by some as well. This is a real problem because now, does that mean my past identifications are no longer valid under the you know those kinds of arguments that I find silly and annoying straw man arguments? Yeah. But what did you let's let's just take a look at that. What do you think about that, Eric? So you know that's a that's a really good point, and I think it it, it kind of gets into a an interesting philosophical discussion about what the support for same source category means. And so in the in the paper here, they they have a few different graphs, kind of describing it in different ways. In let's see, Figure Two, it shows the three point scale and the five point scale overlapping with each other, where the borderline in the three-point scale, so like the borderline between inconclusive and ID, falls right in the middle of support for same source. So it basically is saying that some of the inconclusives in the three-point scale would be upgraded to support for same source, and then some of the IDs in, in this graph, even more IDs, would be downgraded to support for same source. And that's that's one one way to change from a three to a five. Uh, but it's not the other only way. Another way would be in figure four. Uh, basically, ID stays the same, exclusion stays the same, but then you start carving out inconclusive to mean then uh, to, to into support for same, support for different, or regular straight inconclusive. Right. The fine point there is that the threshold for identification basically stays the same was, exactly. was one proposal, or in the other one, uh, there's a bit of an overlap between the two. And then the third option is in figure five is that the inconclusive category stays the same. And then you basically cut the ID conclusion in half where half of them become support for same source and half are just regular ID or maybe not half, but some, some distribution there. So basically nothing that you used to say was inconclusive ever gets upgraded. It all just stays inconclusive. The only thing that happens is that you downgrade a bunch of your IDs into the support for same source category. Right. Your weaker IDs, if you will, the more borderline thin ones get downgraded to support for same source. So this, this, I mean, 
back in my old agency, this was one of the big discussion points of where, which of these three options do, are we going to go with as, as how to migrate from a three to a five point scale? Again, when I say five, it's really just four because we're just adding in the support for same source part of it. Uh, When all of this discussion should be caveated with a big, no one really knows what to do with support for different source. We haven't figured that out yet. Um, and I, I want to get there, but there's been <laughs> so much bullshit about the support for the same source. We have to kind of get this down first before we move on to the other one. Anyway, the, the point that I made then, and I'll, I'll remake now is we're already with, you know, we already have this insanely high accuracy for IDs. With in the three point scale, with the line where it already is, again, overall, then if we already are insanely high in accuracy there, why would we need to downgrade some of those borderline ones into support for same source? Especially since the ones where that we get wrong, the bad IDs that are made aren't at the borderline or they aren't viewed as at the borderline by the examiner making the call. They've got 20 points in common, again, marked inaccurately. The examiner's making an error there, but they're not making an error, mismarking, and only having seven points marked. If it's seven points, basically, you know, basically we get that. If we if it's seven points and we call it an ID, we get that right. It's the ones with 20 points that we that are really um, – the bad IDs tend to be more than that, uh, where, where – a more coincidence in how the minutia seem to line up leads us into to an error. So my thought process is much more in line with figure four in how to convert from a three to a five. Now, that's more as a, now we have to kind of convert that, that theoretical discussion into a real world. And when it hits the real world, I think in actuality, it more fits like figure figure two where there is a bit of an overlap where you're pulling some from each side but but still the the line for id i think is still basically every id that you've previously made i still think is still a good id that you should still now make maybe just on the very edge a couple of the ids come down but support for same source for me is much more of an upgrade uh, to inconclusives that were in the past insufficient into this new category. Interesting. Well, I don't. I don't know that I agree with with everything you said there, and I think we've had disagreements on this before. So, yeah, I, I appreciate your view and actually seeing these graphs. And as you named figure three and four and five on here, uh, it, it was actually really helpful to kind of picture in your head where you might be with this because I think I probably would be more along the lines of figure two. But let me throw out a couple of things. One of the things that my understanding is, although it's not written anywhere, so I could see why the authors in the article wouldn't say anything about it, is that apparently when OSAC developed this five-point scale, there was, as we've talked about in past episodes, a lot of concern about keeping the term identification. So as a compromise, the idea was that identification would actually have a threshold that would be raised to a higher threshold. That was their intent. And I don't know if you were with them at that time or part of that, but that's my understanding. You, you've you heard that before, right? 
I think actually that, that occurred during the gap in between my first stint and my second. Okay. Well, if that is the case and that's what they intended, then I actually look at this paper as mm, mission accomplished. If that was your goal was to raise the threshold for identification so that we were only using it for – really straightforward, clear, unambiguous, everyone sort of agrees identifications and those borderline, do I really want to call this? Do I really have enough here? Those now just become fairly straightforward support for same source. Then it kind of seems like based on these data, that's actually what they got. The 11% of those IDs, those threshold ones dropped to support for same source. Where I think I disagree the most on your point, though, is not there. That that one, I mean, that's kind of a philosophical difference on where you want to place sure. the threshold for ID. And I yeah. have a real concrete level in my head based on using a stats models, and it's a, a, a likely ratio of a billion. That's what I'm looking for. So I sort of know where my threshold of identification is. Where I disagree is that the mistakes, the errors, the – I think you said some of the false positives happen with a lot of features. I, maybe, that, maybe that was your experience, but my experience is that a lot of them are actually pretty borderline and they tend to be – in fact, I've got some data from the thesis that showed that they tended to be right around eight to nine corresponding characteristics. So those real borderline – Right at the threshold ones are the ones I am more concerned about, and I even more concerned about false positives are the ones that have eight to nine not discriminating characteristics that get bumped up to an ID because the examiner has been conditioned to make IDs when they see eight to 12 points. When an examiner sees mm. 12 points in a delta, even if they're decent points, they just they're so conditioned to call an ID. If they've got more than 10 minutiae that they couldn't imagine not calling it, even though those 12 minutiae don't get them to the same level of discriminability that, say, 12 minutiae in a different fingerprint outside of the delta would have given them. So that's that's where I'm concerned is that in the past uh, – and uh, because I do review so many agency cases from around the country, I see a lot of low discriminating – IDs being made in the name of IDs that you got some decent points there. They're just not that discriminating, uh, it, again, based on the rarity of the characteristic or the discriminability. So that's probably where I'd, I will draw my line and say I respectfully disagree but understand your view on the threshold issue. Your good points, Glenn. Um, the, the, one of the research things I've, you know, I'm looking at here is the Miami-Dade uh, accuracy study. Now, it's it's somewhat tough to tell exactly, but they did break out their accuracy numbers by account. So it's mainly based on minutia point count, but it's not entirely minutia, you know, count based. And um, it just kind of in three categories of how they divvied up their the quantity available in each uh, in the latents, and they did that as zero to seven, seven to fourteen. And 14 to 21 mm. um, with no erroneous IDs in the zero to seven category. Right. 1.4% in the seven to 14 and 1.2% in the 14 to 21. What to me, what that points to is, and even some of the things you're saying there, I mean, it's a good points, but more so that the issue isn't really, is more of a misapplication of the border already. 
but you know, I do recognize that you've you've seen other examples that kind of point in, in a different direction where the problem is more uh, at the border. From from this, I was kind of seeing it as more spread out in in all of the areas where IDs are made, not you know, not like concentrated at the border, and uh, not saying that it doesn't happen right there at the border, those borderline conclusions. But if that was the real problem, if it was the the threshold line that was the primary problem here, then you'd kind of expect to see a spike there as to where the errors are happening. It's at the border. I don't think that's where they're happening. I think they're spread out amongst all of the the IDs, but tend to then trail off as you get up past, you know, 20, 30, 40, obviously. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a more continuous graph from my thesis that yeah. – showed the spike at eight to nine right there i mean that that's why oh, okay. it really stands out to me because it's a it's continuous it's not like you said putting them into bins of bins. this to this yeah. so you could actually see the spike where there were no ids at zero to seven because no one was iding at that level or a handful but the spike came right at eight nine and ten and boom you would have all these erroneous IDs, and then they started dropping off again. So, But to take your point, it, it's hard to tell from those data because they're conflating a couple of other things. Mine was a, a pure minutia count in correspondence. Sure. Okay. Uh, so, But again, I, I think we're both arriving at pretty, pretty close to the same place in that figure two where support for same source has some overlap, maybe a disagreement slightly on how much overlap you know, should be there, but some overlap between both ID and inconclusive uh, is both appropriate and where the community seems to be going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I, the one thing I'll point out is that if that truly was OSAC's intention to effectively raise the threshold of identification, then to me, this indicates mission accomplished. They, I mean, they, that's what they're going for. So I, I disagree with those that say this is a problem not if that's what they were intending to do, but I think the 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 thing that that stands out to me is, but that's not stated in their document. It's right. not stated in that standard, and I haven't seen it stated else anywhere other than word of mouth from examiner to examiner who had some contact with OSAC members, which is how I learned about it. All right, so the third thing that was pointed out again on CLPEX that stood out to me was the rate of misleading evidence. And I'll be curious to get your take on the rate of misleading evidence for support for different source. But the one that is most interesting to me is the rate of misleading evidence for support for same source. So for the listener who's not familiar with that term, I'm sure you already know what a false positive and a false negative is, right? So when they're from ground truth is that they're from the same source and you say it's an exclusion, that's a false negative when they are from different sources, but you say it's an identification, that's a false positive. But what do you do if they're from different sources, but you don't say it's an identification, but you say support for same source? That's technically not a false positive. There's another term that comes from the likelihood ratio literature called the rate of misleading evidence. And it's when you are suggesting that the likelihood ratio is pointing in a particular direction or the weight of evidence is indicating the prop one proposition over the other or favors that proposition over the other, but in a misleading way from the ground truth. So to get to the the data, there were of course zero 
support for same source conclusions under the three point scale because they don't exist there. So we can only compare that to the five point scale. Now, when they were coming from the same source, so when they were coming from the same source and the examiner correctly then used support for same source, that happened 97 times. But when they were coming from different sources, the examiners participating said support for same source 17 times. So the way to look at this is out of 114 uses of support for same source, effectively 17 divided by 114, or if you will, 15% of their usage of support for same source was incorrect or misleading. So if you were working in a lab and you were offering support for same source conclusions and these data reflect the, that rate in your laboratory, then approximately one in seven times you would be giving a conclusion that's misleading to jurors or investigators or whatever end user if these data reflected that approximately one in seven times per this study, support for same source was different. So your thoughts on that, Eric? I, I, I'm kind of in between – kind of two thoughts at the same time pop, in, pop into my head. A, that's not terribly surprising. I would have expected maybe a little bit lower uh, than, than what you said, 15%? Yeah. Than 15, but it's not, you know, insanely surprising. Combined with, you know, I wonder how that would uh, improve or change over time in agencies that routinely use this conclusion instead of, you know, having a study with people that, where this is basically the first time that they're using it. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's that's an interesting limitation. Those unfamiliar with it may not know how to apply this. Yeah, okay. From my experience, and again, this is how in my old agency, in just kind of how in general I've applied the support for same source conclusion, is is pretty limited in you know not really taking many, if at all, of the previous three conclusion scale IDs and downgrading them. And then only upgrading the, those inconclusives where, you know, I was just like, yeah, man, if I just had one more point, that that's a pretty narrow set versus someone applying it differently. We would then have very different, uh, I would assume, uh, rates of misleading evidence there. Um, and it's tough to separate out, you know, from, from this data, which group is and which group is preferred like you know which that's kind of a bigger question of do you want more here and less accurate or less here and more accurate like you know, how do you balance all of that i guess i have the view on this is thank you for the data now yeah. we have a talking <laughs> point and yes. i don't really care that that number I, again i think your point is 100 percent on uh, let's let's see what more data shows if that's accurate and holds up. Let's just say for argument's sake that that actually is a pretty good assessment of the rate of misleading evidence for using a scale like this. Great. Sure. Now we can do some risk assessment. So I, I yeah. teach you know a workshop 
on this uh, through Alice's website, you know, Evolve Forensics. So this is actually one of the workshops I, I teach, and this is a moment when we talk about these data, and here's what I always tell students. So here's what I'm going to say here is that if you are of the mindset that you don't want to use the five-point scale, congratulations, here's your data point. This is the perfect reason for you not to use it. You can go to your bosses, your supervisor, anyone else and say, hey, this is what I've been talking about. This is why we should not use this because one in seven times we will be misinforming the jury, misleading the jury, possibly setting someone up to go to jail who shouldn't be in jail and whatever crazy scenario you want to take it and make it seem like it's the worst thing in the world, that this evidence is going to convict all these people unjustly. Here's your data point. You're welcome. Take it. You're good to go. On the other hand, (laughs) if you work for an agency that looks at this as a risk assessment and goes, as long as we very carefully explain this to the trier of fact and the end user what it means and what it doesn't. And we basically tell them, look, we can give you seven new leads that we weren't giving you before. And they would have been inconclusive in the past. But now we can say something a little bit more in seven additional cases. One out of those seven is going to be wrong. Investigators, do you want that information? And I don't know a single good investigator out there who would say, no, no, you keep that to yourselves. I just want to know if it's him or not. Don't tell me anything. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine that. And now an agency can look realistically at the risk. And if I'm testifying in the court and I'm using support for the same source, now I have some data I could say, oh, and by the way, jurors, this conclusion I just gave you, you should know that in one study that was conducted – This conclusion was wrong about one in seven times where the examiner said it could potentially have come from this person when it didn't. So that to me is good information for them to assess the reliability, if you will, of that kind of conclusion when it's presented in the courtroom. But I think we should be doing the same thing with identification and false positive error rates as well. Well, right. But – I, to me, I mean this is – it's great data. It it gives you what you need to go to your bosses, your supervisor, your lawyers, whoever needs to be in the room as an agency to assess do we want to report these kinds of conclusions. Well, now you have some risk assessment and I think that's really the important thing is that – one agency shouldn't unilaterally decide for everyone else, no, we're not doing this. This is too risky. This is not right. Some agencies have a different viewpoint on that, and I can tell you, listeners, that those, for example, that work for military agencies have a very different assessment of the risks and the importance of intelligence and how that can be combined with other information. So. Thinking that your evidence is the only thing that's necessary and it has to be an ID, it's an all or nothing or it shouldn't be reported, if that's what your agency represents, that's your agency. But not all agencies in the US or abroad work that way, and so this gives some real data to assess that risk in a – I I think a a more realistic way. What do you think, Eric? I mean there's lots of points in there I completely agree with. You know, the – that whole, you know – Officer saying no thanks, keep that to yourself. Again, <laughs> you imagine? there's just no way. Uh, yeah. Or or a prosecutor. Yeah. Like imagine you know the prosecutor saying no, no, I don't want to know that. Right. No way in hell. Right. Uh, and and you know I've been saying this for years. Let's get a prosecutor that knows what they're the, what they're doing. Right. Yeah. You know just 
we're in fantasy land now, but let's just stay with me here, Glenn. Okay. (laughs) Um, Knows what they're doing. Gets you up on the stand. You're a three point scale agency, right? You have no interest in the support for same source. Uh, Glenn, put yourself in that, that mindset here for now for a second. Okay. You have an inconclusive, uh, result, but, uh, you know that this is that kind of that kind of that kind of comparison that that Glenn Langenberg he would report out of support for same source. Well, you stick to your guns. It's an inconclusive, okay, Mister. You're not Glenn, I guess, because I just said Glenn was somebody else. Uh, what was your result in this comparison? Inconclusive. Uh, did you see any similarities between the uh, the latent print and the known print? Yes, I did. Lots. And why didn't you report an identification? Because I didn't have enough agreement. Or twelve points to call an identification, I'd but there was some. But there was some agreement uh, between those two prints. Some agreement, but I, I like to count points, and I needed twelve. Were there any significant differences between the two prints? Not at all. All right, but done. I got you there. You're in a five point scale agency now. I, I, it's just that easy. Yeah. Uh, no. I, I, this is why I I, I can't. The, the sticking with the five the three point scale doesn't make any sense to me because it, it's. All it takes is just a prosecutor that knows what they're doing, and you're in a five-point scale now. But one in seven times, you could be misleading them. That's 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 true. But again, you, like you're just suggested, just say that. <laughs> yeah, and and here's the thing: if if you work for a laboratory, and you know you work for a state lab, I worked for a state lab at one point. If you have a DNA unit, then this is already happening. They've already, as an agency, have decided that. Having evidence that in, that includes someone in a pool of possible contributors when, in fact, they are not the contributor is already worthwhile evidence to provide. Now, if you work for a strictly law enforcement agency that's black and white and that's all we're going to report, that's different. Okay, that's that agency. Not all agencies have the same mission. Not all agencies have the same assessment of risk. Which is why the OSAC scale was written such that the different agencies that have different needs that support their customers in different ways can still fit underneath the same standard document. Yeah. All right, we're getting off topic here into, into OSAC instead of instead of this paper specifically. Well, I I didn't think that was really off topic. I mean, I I think I think that's important though that that the the intent of the OSAC document appears to be working. I, th- I think that's ultimately what I walked away from this is I had more information than I had before with some good right. data. Again, the applicability part makes it a little tricky. But I had more information than I had before, and I kind of thought to myself, oh, good. It looks like we're ready to make the shift to the five-point scale. I don't really see a problem. I mean, I, I don't. I did you i mean see a problem no no i i I, and i mean again i'm already there so this is just um uh, again a step in that direction of providing support for for continuing in in the direction that you already kind of went in uh, a long time ago no no nothing nothing here is is uh concerning to me that oh no maybe i should rethink this whole five conclusion scale thing not at all it's 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 continuing on down that line and you know, nothing is is particularly shocking i i think that as the research continues and gets more refined uh we can come into a finer focus to understand better about uh, about the effects of this five conclusion scale but also 
as it's applied in slightly different ways and trying, you know, just kind of zeroing in on the effects. And maybe there is the most appropriate way to use the five conclusion scale. And again, I'll just take more research to get there. Hmm. But, but I mean, this is a first step down that path and nothing is in here is a big stop sign saying me, you know, telling me to, to, to slow down, turn around or go back. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one thing I'm going to point out is on page nine. It says that when they looked at things like sensitivity and the false positive error rate and how these two scales mapped out on these decision thresholds, he said that based on these results, examiners do not perform worse when given a five-conclusion scale relative to the three-conclusion scale. And while this is different from the results of some other work, it's reassuring to the latent print community should an, an expanded scale be adopted. So they recognize that there's still, you know, that this is still emerging research and there's more to do. But at least this paper showed that we're not performing really worse using this kind of approach. And it allows for more information to be presented to the end user, be that investigators or jurors, et cetera. And you and I, we've talked at ad nauseum about this issue in other podcast episodes, but we do see value to having those scales expanded so that you can at least try to convey more information to the end user. Uh, so let's look at the other half of that, the support for a different source. Yeah. Same kind of calculations, rate of misleading evidence. Um, so first off, let's look at all the way at the exclusion side, like all the way to exclusion. Yeah. And the false negative discovery rate for uh, the three conclusion scale looks to be, and I just did some quick math on my calculator here. There were 22 erroneous exclusions made and 176 correct, uh, which puts the false negative discovery rate at 11.1%. Yeah, that fits with black box, which is pretty. Which was yeah, about thirteen and a half or so for black box. So that's you know right around there. Uh, yeah, in your crazy calculations, it's either right. it's thirteen and mine it's eleven, but that's fine. <laughs> which why I just use all the exclusions, and you know it's fine. Yeah. Um, okay. And <laughs> again, it makes sense. Everything's kind of still lining up with with black box. Looking at the five conclusion scale, the false negative discovery rate is nine point three percent. Not hugely different than eleven, so yeah, it's know, it's in it, the, it's in the expected range, right? So, if if anything, what uh, so then for the support for different source, there were forty four misleading support for different sources and one hundred twenty seven correct, I guess, uh, support for different sources, right? Not not misleading, uh, which puts that. Let's see, a rate, negative rate of misleading evidence discovery rate. <laughs> I don't think that's the correct term, but at uh, 25%. Uh, again, not super surprising, um, not super concerning to me. Uh, it, what it looks like is that a few of the, of the kind of borderline exclusions were downgraded from from exclusion down into support for different source, which then tended to make the exclusion a little bit more accurate, not hugely, but maybe a little bit. And then it took a bunch of the inconclusives uh, where we previously had just said straight inconclusive and in general provided more information about that, but still one out of every four support for different sources was, uh, was incorrect. So I think here, again, it's a promising start. Uh, I'd be very curious once we get to a point where we can more clearly define 
what support for different source is and when to use it. Well, heck, get exclusion itself to be more defined as to what it is and when to use it. Right. Uh, that uh, that both of these would improve. You know, good to see that we're we're. It's not just a coin toss that we're at least headed in the right direction, but. I think it also reveals that uh, that we still have a ways to go in providing these definitions tr- in the training and, and everything else that goes along uh, with this conclusion. Yeah, yeah. All right, so just a couple of closeout comments. Again, just kind of getting away from the thrust of the paper, but uh, into just a couple of comments that we've talked about here before on the paper. And since the mentions appear here, I just wanted to bring them up. Uh, first is on page two. There's uh, in the middle of the paragraph there says uh, recent work by Swafford and Chino assessed the beliefs of potential jurors and found that 71% of those surveyed interpreted identification to imply to the exclusion of all others. Uh, so we've, we, we reviewed that paper oh, a year or so ago, if not longer. Oh, no longer. It has to have been like, oh, two yeah. years ago now. Yeah. And at the time when we first talked about it, we, we had some concerns about how the questions were phrased. And I think that our points were validated by follow-up work done by Tim Fail out of California that did his own survey uh, and found that that not to be the case uh, or not as heavily to be the case. And, you know, with differently phrased questions. Uh, so wanted to point that out that uh, the term identification does not in the general public, at least in my view, and you know, Tim Fails' questions back that up, uh, imply to the exclusion of all others. It's an important point to bring up in the article, and I think listeners can go back and, and review those episodes where we discussed over several episodes all the different research that – at the end of the day, I, I walked away from all those articles and our discussion with Alicia and others that my view was jurors ultimately aren't as sophisticated in separating these things out. And they basically have this sense of it's either very, 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 very likely him or kind of likely him or not. And and it's not that sophisticated. There are these broad categories that they put you know, evidence into that. And I, I don't know that we need to get as hung up as we do on all of this language about source identification and so forth. Uh, agreed. And I would say that part of the paper we didn't really discuss a bit was about this translation of from the scale of evidence to the bins, the categorical bins of conclusions, and then back to whether that you know, is evidence towards someone's guilt or innocence. I, I saw that as, as very theoretical in this paper without yeah. w- without really the the very sophisticated data. I think we need to do that with jurors. Right. And two points there. First, that ID doesn't always mean inculpatory. Exclusion not always mean exculpatory. Right. It's a little more complex than that, obviously. But it also under what what I would agree with is it does underline the importance of the definitions of these uh, of these categories as they're just passed off in a report to somebody else that it's very clear on the reader the very precise definition as to what this means yeah uh, to to preserve um, so there's not there's less confusion possible to arise there but then the other thing is on page three uh, there's a line where they, they kind of go into this is a little confusing to me the the value of a uh, statistical 
scale or a you know, basically non-categorical scale where it's continuous, it struck me as a little weird, uh, you know, praising the the concept of a continuous scale in a paper that's that's really researching the benefits of one categorical uh, system over another. But it goes on to then say that some U.S.-based laboratories have moved in the direction of calculating likelihood ratios, with the with the reference specifically being to the U.S. Army Crime Lab and their use of FRSTAT. Uh, so to be clear, FRSTAT is not a likelihood ratio, and it never has been a likelihood ratio, and uh, it, it, it's something different. And we've discussed in the past about uh, the benefits and limitations of FRSTAT, uh, but it is not a likelihood ratio. Right. All right. So with that, uh, I think we're ready to wrap things up. All right. So why don't we wrap things up here? Well, I'll just close my view on this paper with I'm very thankful to the authors for exploring this, for giving us data, because it's helpful to enter the conversation with some data now. And again, as I said earlier – if anyone is considering going in this direction, this is a really good starting point. What I would recommend is that you do a similar thing in your own agency so that you know how your examiners will use such a scale in your agency. It's one of the things in the webinar I actually talk about and offer to examiners to help examiners to transition. I would certainly be willing to help examiners with the images so that they can conduct this kind of study internally with their examiners. Although I, I always recommend write your SOP first so you know which parts of the OSAC scale you're going to use. Then train your examiners on those changes so that they get some practice with it. To your point, Eric, about using the scale having never looked at it before, that could yeah. be a factor. And then once you have your examiners comfortable with this new scale before they start using it in actual casework, then you give them this kind of test and a similar test where you can compare the effect and look at the false positive rate, the false negative rate, and the rate of misleading evidence. And then you'll have your own set of data, and it wouldn't take very long to do this. You'll have your own set of data before you go live into casework, knowing how these conclusions will be represented by your own examiners. That would be my recommendation. And just basically recreate this study, and then you know you can use this study as a, as a guide for how to design a similar approach. And if you happen to, in that whole process, figure out how and when to use support for different source, mm. share that with the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's definitely some thoughts going around as to, you know, but we need to, to, to definitely do some work in that direction and figure out <laughs> what to measure and when to use that. Uh, in addition to the when to use the whole exclusion thing altogether. Good point. All right. Well, any classes to mention, Glenn? Yeah, still going strong with the webinars. I mean, with 2021 coming up, I don't have anything live for a long time. So just the webinars, check out EvolveForensics.com. That's EvolveForensics.com. That's Alice White's website. She and I are both offering a number of webinars on various topics, including the OSAC scale, as well as things such as Understanding bias in friction ridge examinations, conflict resolution, how to measure the discriminability of characteristics and and fingerprint features. Alice has a number on distortions. I've developed one on bloody fingerprints. Go to evolveforensics.com and check those out. 
All right, so the uh, anagram. We started off uh, way back at the beginning with uh, recapture opossums. Uh, yep. Glenn, have you managed to unscramble this? So I have to. I have to confess, I haven't. I got stuck. I got really hung up on pores. I kept seeing pores oh. and process, but I, I could not make anything work. So how many words was it? Three words. Uh, so that's the first clue uh, for anyone listening that wants to then pause and try again. Uh, and then second clue is it's very relevant to today's discussion. Really? Oh, huh. Because I looked for scale initially, but I didn't see scale. Nope, nope. Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me give out the first word here. Then the first word of the three is support, and then same source. Yeah, this is the first week I, I the first week I've uh, stumped you, Glenn. Yeah, usually you 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 barrel through these. Um, That's a good one, though. I should have had that. I should have had that. <laughs> I th- I just thought for sure, just from the the uh, the discussion for it, uh, the discussion on it, you know, being just so relevant and. And those words popping out. But I, I think overall, I think we've reached the limit of how many letters we want to unscramble. And we definitely have to go, what is this, uh, 11, 17 letters? Don't have to go fewer than 17. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but good job to anyone out there that did manage to uh, to crack that on open. All right. So for the uh, to the rest of the closeout stuff, com. You can find our episodes and links to you know any other uh, stuff that we have posted on Facebook, Twitter, etc. And pretty soon, we'll kind of just tease this out. We'll be starting up or restarting a mailing list. So I know many of you listeners are also on uh, Sandy Siegel's uh, mailing list. And you may have seen over the past oh, six months or so that kind of trailing off. Uh, so we're in the works to get that restarted uh, with a, a carrying forward her previous uh, email list, uh, working with Sandy to get that all set up, uh, and then also allowing people to sign up for it uh, through the website. So look for that coming out soon. We're we're in kind of the final stages of it. So by the time this airs, it might be up or it might just be really close to being up and ready. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I've I've man, I've enjoyed those emails for since I started. So it was sad that Sandy wasn't able to continue that since, um, uh, since the spring, uh, but very excited that we'll be able to, to help uh, keep that going. Let's see. Email addresses. If you have questions for us, comments on anything, you know, call outs to some sort of crazy thing we said at the beginning of the year, <laughs> then Glenn, G-L-E-N-N at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not necessarily of anyone else. So I guess with that, I will close out and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay sane. Stay healthy.